Hello, I'm Harry Glorickian. Welcome to The Harry Glorickian Show, the interview podcast that explores how technology is changing everything we know about healthcare. Artificial intelligence, big data, predictive analytics. In fields like these, breakthroughs are happening much faster than most people realize. If you want to be proactive about your own healthcare and the healthcare of your loved ones, you'll need to learn some of these new tips and techniques of how medicine is changing and how you can take advantage of all the new options. Explaining this approaching world is the mission of the new book, The Future You. It's also our theme here on the show, where we bring you the conversations with innovators, caregivers, and patient advocates who are transforming the healthcare system and working to push it in positive directions. When the pandemic swept across the world in early 2020, Spain was one of those countries' hardest hit. At the time, Nuria Oliver was a telecommunications engineer working and living in Valencia, which is one of the 17 autonomous regions in Spain, the equivalent of a U.S. state. She'd spent years working for companies like Microsoft, Telefonica, and Vodafone using AI to analyze data from mobile networks to explore big questions about healthcare, economics, crime, and other issues. And Oliver realized right away that mobile data could be a very important tool for government leaders and public health officials trying to get a handle on the spread of COVID-19. She went to the president of Valencia and proposed putting together a team of scientists who could support government decision makers by analyzing mobile network data. She thought the data could reveal, among other things, how much people were moving around. That, in turn, could help predict infection rates, and it would show whether lockdowns or other restrictions on people's movements were really helping to contain the spread of the virus. The president immediately accepted her proposal and appointed her to the honorary position of Commissioner to the President on AI and Data Science Against COVID-19. And as it turned out, the predictions from Oliver's group were startlingly accurate. In December 2020, when the group entered a contest sponsored by the XPRIZE Foundation for an AI-based pandemic response system, they won first place and wound up splitting the $500,000 prize with a second place team from Slovenia. And for today's show, Nuria Oliver joined me to explain how they did it. We also talked about the difference data is making in fighting against the pandemic and how our phones are helping to keep us healthy. We recorded this a couple of months ago in mid-October, but obviously the pandemic hasn't receded at all since then, so everything you'll hear is still relevant. Nuria, welcome to the show. It's it's so great to have you on. Uh, I know there's a, a little bit of a time difference because you're over in Europe right now, but Nuria, I was looking at your background and I was like, oh my god, I'm like, if I try to go through her entire CV, like we're we're gonna, it's the hour of the show is gonna like completely go just for the CV. Uh, but I, I wonder if you can sort of give the listeners a, a a quick maybe version of of how your interest in connection between technology and human behavior has has developed over the years what big themes did you focus on in your various academic and industry posts at MIT Media Lab the Microsoft Research Telefonica Vodafone I mean those are just a few of the things that you've done um 
you know, I, when I, when I always think I've done something with my life, I look at people like you and I'm like, I've got so much more to do. But if you could sort of give us that a, a short version, that would be awesome. All right. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure <laughs> to be here. Um, let's see. So I'm originally from Spain. I uh, studied electrical engineering and computer science in Spain. It's called well, te telecommunications engineering. And since I was very small, um, I was always fascinated by the idea of being a scientist or being an inventor or being a researcher, um, discovering something or inventing something new or, or answering questions that hadn't been answered before. So I love mysteries and logic problems and, you know, difficult things to solve. And I wasn't sure, you know, how to kind of channel that. And um, when I studied um, telecommunications engineering, which was six years at the time, so it was like together with a master's sort of like equivalent degree. In my fourth year, I did a project on um, the parallelisms between neural networks and human uh, brain and the human brain and the human sort of like uh, neurons. And it was the discovery of artificial intelligence to me. And it was pretty much love at first sight. I realized that it was fascinating <laughs> to build technology that could like do something intelligent. It, it sounded like science fiction to me. And, and, I, and I always have had this vision that, you know, technology is a great tool that we can use to uh, have positive social impact and to, you know, to improve uh, the quality of life of people. So uh, this has been my vision since I was also very small. So with artificial intelligence, I thought, well, if I could build computers that could understand people, that would be the first step to build computers that can help people. So I started focusing on modeling human behavior. And then I went to MIT to do a PhD, and that was the main focus of my work. So I built one of the first uh, facial expression recognition systems in the world that was working in real time. Or I made an, as an intelligent car that could predict the next maneuver that the driver would do. I participated also in the first um, smart clothes fashion show in the world in 1997. Um, so it was really an exciting time to be at the Media Lab, and I had a chance to develop new models of different aspects of human behavior. Then I went to Microsoft Research, and I continued my work on that topic. I built an intelligent office. I did with a colleague a system similar to the Minority Report, where you could control mm -hmm. the computer, you see your hands in the air. And in 2005, I realized that I had spent a decade building, you know, smart computers, smart cars, smart rooms. But even at the time, the most um, personal computer was the mobile phone, and it probably was going to be the mobile phone. And I felt that, you know, we weren't really um, leveraging the opportunities that the phone was bringing to us in terms of helping us. So I decided to explore that topic. And I started working on projects related to the intersection between mobile phones, health, and wellness. So I did a project to um, detect a sleep apnea on the phone. I did another one to help people achieve their exercise goals using what is called persuasive computing, which has sort of like theories of human motivation and psychology, but implemented like on the phone to encourage people and motivate people to change behaviors. Um, 
I got the offer to move back to Spain at the end of 2007 and um, never thought I was ever going to go back to Spain, but it seemed like an interesting <laughs> opportunity to create uh, and lead a research um, area within a very large telco, Telefónica, the largest telco in Spain. And uh, with my family, we decided, okay, let's try. So we moved to Barcelona and the challenge was to create a top you know, research team from scratch in uh, topics that were not the traditional telco topics at the time, you know, at the yes. time, telcos were sort of like networking companies, right? Mm -hmm. And and I was doing, uh, you know, big data, you know, data science, artificial intelligence, uh, topics that today are at the core of what a telco company is, but in 2007, you know, it wasn't uh, really the case yet. So, um, so we continued working on, 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 on two streams. So on the one hand, making phones deserve their name of a smartphone, basically. So we did a project to help people take their medication correctly, for example, and um, support medication adherence, particularly in the elderly. Um, but the other stream was a new stream for me, which was because of working in a telco, um, we could have access to large scale anonymized mobile network data. <sighs> So right. data about an entire city or an entire country, fully anonymized, you know, fully non-personal data. And that data turns out that is very valuable for social good. Yes. For example, when there is a natural disaster or when, um, or to infer the socioeconomic status of a region yes. or to understand crime and predict hotspots of crime in cities or to help when there are pandemics. Yes. So those are all areas that I started um, uh, developing and exploring while at Telefonica, and I created the area of data science for social good. I was in Telefonica for eight years, and then they off uh, I, I left Telefonica and I joined Vodafone as director of research in data science globally. And again, the challenge was similar, create from scratch uh, research um, um, sort of like activities across I don't know, 20 different countries in Vodafone. I also created the area of data science for social good. Um, and, and then I left Vodafone, but I continue with a connection with Vodafone because I'm still chief scientific advisor to a think tank that Vodafone has in Berlin. Um, since 2015, I had, while I was at Telefonica, I had also gotten involved with an NGO, which is based in the US, which is called Data Pop Alliance. And it has been created by the MIT Media Lab, the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, the Overseas Development Institute, and Flowminder. And the goal is how to leverage data and AI for social good. So it was very aligned right. with what I had been doing. So I've been collaborating with them in parallel, developing a lot of projects in developing countries and in, in showing the value that data analyzed with AI methods can have to actually accelerate development uh, of a lot of regions. Um, and then in 2018, I became very involved with a, a very exciting European initiative called ELIS, which means the European Laboratory for Learning and Intelligence Systems. And it is the result of a grassroots movement of the European scientists. And our goal is to contribute to Europe's technological sovereignty in AI uh, by attracting and retaining the best scientists in AI to Europe. And to do that, we need to, you know, change a little bit how things are done in Europe. And we've launched a number of actions uh, uh, and, and activities that we can possibly talk later. And then finally, in March of 2020, 
given that I had been working for over a decade on how to use data and AI for social good, including how to use it in the context of infectious diseases and pandemics, I felt that for the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, for the coronavirus pandemic, the governments weren't going to use all these advances that we had made in science in actually um, analyzing data using AI methods to support decision-making. So I felt that maybe it was a missed opportunity, you know, once again, to actually have this disconnection between where science is and where sort of like the real world are and the decision-makers right. are. So so I, I, I had an idea in March of 2020, which was proposed, uh, my idea was to propose to the uh, central government and also to the state, so to say government. Spain is divided in 17 autonomous regions, which are the equivalent to states in the US. Yep, yep. And they have presidents, which is the equivalent to governors in the US. Um, so I proposed to the president of the region, the idea of having a team of scientists working really closely with the decision makers in sort of like performing relevant models and data analysis that would support their decisions. And they said yes immediately in the presidency of the Valencian government. And they appointed me commissioner to the president on AI and data science against COVID-19, which is an honorary position. And basically I have been leading a team of 20 plus scientists since then, since then working on, on four big areas and the intersection between data, AI and the pandemic. Yeah, I was, you know, it's interesting that you say like, you know, they don't always take advantage of things. I remember, I have to go back in my memory, 20 years ago, actually, because it was right about the time my son was born, is we I pitched to Telefonica about location-based services. And at the time, it was almost impossible for people to wrap their head around this idea that location intertwined with data and giving somebody the information they were looking for right, to help them make a decision was going to be, a, a, now what is it? You know, it's a, you know, billions and billions of dollars of an industry. But at that time, it was, people couldn't get wrap their head around it. So that's, I think, if you're ahead of your time, it's always, it's always difficult for the average person to sort of understand Definitely. where things are going. Yeah, certainly, <clears throat> certainly, this is certainly the case. And I think, in the case of our experience in Valencia, we were lucky that there was sort of like a confluence of factors that really enabled this initiative to not only to happen, but to actually be sustained over time for almost two years now or a year, over a year and a half, and to, and to have a certain level of impact and success. And I think one of the elements was the government had already been working for a couple of years prior on um, the fourth industrial revolution, the profound transformation of our society because yes. of you know disciplines like biotechnology, nanotechnology, or artificial intelligence. They had published their strategy on artificial intelligence. They had realized that the public administrations haven't undergone the digital transformation that most companies, particularly large companies, have already undergone. And you know they recognized that there was this opportunity to transform the public administration and become more data-driven, become more digital. So I think when I made this proposal, they were in the right mindset and they were already thinking about this. 
And there was also a relationship of trust uh, with me because I had uh, collaborated with them in drafting the AI strategy. And they, they knew that it was a serious effort. They knew that we were going to try to do our best. So I think there are all these different elements that um, that really helped. And then there was one director general, well, there is, she's still there, working for the president, who actually comes from the US. She's Spanish, but she spent a, a lot of time working in the uh, uh, for the mayor of New York uh, City. So she had a lot of the same mentality that I had. Uh, she was a little bit of an agent of change within the government. She's been a member of our team since the beginning, coming to every single meeting. And that is absolutely necessary because yeah. um, they are the ones that are going to benefit from whatever we do. And they are the ones that need to use it. So they need to see the value and they need to understand it. Uh, so I think it's very yeah. important to have this sort of like mixed, uh, multidisciplinary, multi-institutional teams. So, I mean, I applaud them for seeing that because if you have ever watched our Congress or Senate interview technology people. Yeah, I've seen it's, the infamous um, interview. <laughs> it, it's... It's it's quite fascinating some of the questions where, you know, you realize they know so little about these technologies or their impact and don't understand like all of these things are like can, you should be looking at them as nuclear weapons. How do you use them? How do you manage them? How do you use them for good? How do you how do you put things in place to protect people? Right. Yes. Um, and and the, other, the other important message is. I don't think it is acceptable for any policymaker or any representative of citizens to publicly acknowledge, oh, I don't know anything about technology. I don't think that is acceptable because technology permeates everything, every single yes. aspect of our lives. Um, so um, it's, it's, um, it's such a, a fundamental element of our society that you need to know a lot about technology yes. if you really want to make the right decisions about any topic. Absolutely any topic, right? So, so I think that's uh, definitely something that, at least in some governments, they recognize that there is a need for uh, I, I, identifying new profiles to work in the public administration, creating new positions, more you know, tech-savvy positions, data scientists, and um, but also educating the policymakers and and doing yes. courses, you know, on on relevant topics related to technology. I think this is very, very, very important. So let's pivot now, because I think all of this technology came really in uh, to a lot of good or use when COVID-19 came along, right? So, you know, you one of the data I think you collect in Valencia is mobile data, right? Um, exactly, you know, understanding how this data helped you understand and manage the course of the pandemic. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that that's important for people to understand. Yes. So we had four large work streams in this uh, data science for COVID-19 initiative. And the first one was modeling large-scale human mobility. Why? Because an infectious disease like COVID-19 that is transmitted from human to human it doesn't become a pandemic if people don't move. And that's why <laughs> we have been confined, right? right? Because it's our movements, the ones that are propagating the disease. So understanding how people move, determining if the confinement measures are working or not is very important 
to make the right you know, decisions and the right policies. So there was another lucky factor that I didn't mention, but that has really been very helpful in Spain and is the following factor. For two years prior to the pandemic, the Spanish National Office of Statistics had been um, drafting a collaboration agreement with the three largest telcos in Spain, which are Telefonica, Vodafone, and Orange. Mm -hmm. to, um, um, so let me rewind a little bit. So part of this transformation that we mentioned, you know, of society because, you know, of the fourth industrial revolution, you know, and artificial intelligence, part of this transformation is actually uh, um, impacting the National Office of Statistics of everywhere in the world, where the traditional methods to build official statistics, which are via uh, surveys, are uh, susceptible to being improved, leveraging pervasive technology and sort of like big data. So there right. is a global movement in every national office of statistics, pretty much of every country, to explore how they could build official statistics through the analysis of data automatically without having mm -hmm. to do surveys because it's very expensive and it doesn't really scale. And that's why there is only one census every 10 years or 15 years right. or in some countries 40 years because it's just very expensive to do the census. So the Spanish National Office of Statistics, one of the statistics that they compute is commuting patterns. And they do it by doing surveys. Mm -hmm. And they thought, okay, maybe we can collaborate with the telcos and analyze aggregated data from the antennas, from the cell phone antennas, mm -hmm. um, to infer these mobility patterns automatically without having to do surveys. Mm -hmm. So that was a very long process of negotiations and getting all the approvals from the, the data protection agencies and right. from the legal departments of all these telcos, blah, blah, blah. So that took them a huge amount of time. <laughs> so in November of 2019, right before the pandemic, they, they got all the okays necessary and they launched the pilot to see how well they could um, um, create commuting matrices from this data. That was actually a relatively controversial project. It appeared in the media. It wasn't communicated very well because they were saying the National Office of Statistics is tracking you, which is completely wrong. They weren't tracking anyone. But anyhow, when the pandemic happened, they already had all the infrastructure in place and all the legal ag agreements in place to actually get access to the mobile network data from the operators and combine the data and compute mobility matrices out of the data. So right. that, that mobility piece that we did was relatively easy in the sense that the data access was mm -hmm. already available. So the, the, vice, the, vice minister, the vice president of Spain, Calvino, she appointed us the pilot region to be able to use that data during the first wave of the pandemic at a time when there were really, there was almost no data, you know, and it was very hard. We were making a lot right. of decisions kind of blindly. So through the National Office of Statistics, we were able to access that data and then um, identify, so measure to which degree the confinement measures had impacted the mobility of the population, you know, how successful the stay at home campaign was, how much right. labor mobility was impacted, well, how was the radius of movement reduced because of the measures, but also yep. what was the impact of those measures on the spread of the virus, because at the end you also want to know, okay, is this really slowing down the spread of the virus or not, right? So yes. we were also able to do that, yeah. So 
But now you carried out um, a large-scale survey of the people in Valencia. And so when you look at survey data compared to mobility data, how do you think about that? Yeah, so, so the first line of work was the mobility analysis. Then we have two more lines, one which might, we might talk about later. One is the computational epidemiological models. The other one was predictive models. And then the fourth line was a citizen survey. And why did we launch this citizen survey? So we launched the survey because in March of 2020, and even today, there were a lot of questions that we couldn't answer. We didn't have any data sources. For example, what is the social behavior that people have? What is the emotional impact of the pandemic? What's the resilience of the population you know, towards all these measures? Um, are there tests? You know, are people being tested? What is the prevalence of symptoms? What's the labor impact and the economic impact? What kind of protection measures are people taking? How are people moving? Are they, are they, are they leaving their homes or all? Are they taking public transportation? I mean, there were so many interesting questions, you know, that we couldn't really answer. So yes. we decided to ask the people, you know, to say, well, let's just draft, let's design the shortest possible survey that would give us the most information about people's behaviors and perception and situation during the pandemic. So we came out with 26 questions, which we translated to many different languages and the, the survey is deployed in different countries in the world. It has almost 700,000 answers right now. And, and one of them is Spain, evidently, but we also have a very representative sample of in, in the, I think in the almost 100,000 from Germany, Italy, Brazil. And the survey has been regularly used by the media, by the policymakers, but also by people to have a sense of you know, how we are doing. So I think the survey has different angles to it. Yes. One element is giving a voice to people. You know, I think we have been subject to a lot of measures that have happened to us, but we, have, we as citizens haven't had a lot of opportunities to really tell how we were doing you know, and how the pandemic was impacting us and, and, and you know, and our fears, you know, or what we were thinking. So the survey is a way to listen to, to the people and to give them a chance to tell us every week, you know, how things are going. It's also an incredible tool to really connect the citizens to the policymakers so they understand, you know, for example, was the intention to get vaccinated, you know, we know since April of 2020, for example, that the most impacted group emotionally, psychologically, is the youth. So the government right. can think, okay, we need to invest in, in programs for the youth. But we know that since April of 2020, it's not that we know it now. We know it for over a year and a half, you know, from now. So there's a lot of yeah. things that we know, you know, for many, many, many months. Um, so that has been incredibly helpful. So the survey is, is completely complementary to the large-scale mobility data. We do have a little bit of mobility information because we asked people their transportation means because we wanted to see if people were walking or they were driving individually or they were taking public transport. And we did observe, uh, well, public transport was kind of shut down for a few um, weeks or months. So there was a, a huge increase in walking uh, yes. during the first lockdown, especially. And, and then there was... There wasn't really a big use of public transportation until uh, probably the fall of 2020 or even like the, the spring of 2021. 
Um, so, um, so yeah, so we did have a little bit of, of uh, mobility information, but very complementary to the large scale mobility that we could analyze with the mobile data. Yeah. Yeah. I think this, this sort of way that the government or your group is interacting with the people to sort of get this information. I mean, I, I think that's a more organized and statistically significant way than Facebook or Twitter or any of these other big rooms that you can yell in, right? So, you know, it, it, it adds to the discussion. Yeah, I mean, we, we invested a lot of thought and, 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 I mean, a fair amount of time within the fact that we had no time because we had to react really quickly. But I think if we, if we started this effort in mid-March, right, right at the very, very, very beginning of the pandemic, and I think we launched the survey March 28th. So we had about oh, wow. 10 days... Yeah, we're very fast, but we really thought a lot about it. We spent, I mean, we worked all day, all night, all the time. I mean, there was nothing else to do anyway. So, I mean, we were just like sort of like working, working, working. I mean, we, I mean, I have three children too, but, you know, we were like really working. And uh, my husband also got very in, uh, involved in this. It was kind of like a family effort. Uh, and we invested, um, you know, um, we, yeah, we invested a lot of time in designing the survey. So the, the questions were really would be the most helpful possible and sort of like complementary to what the other data sources that we had. And I think that was relatively successful. I mean, it's, it's definitely been very helpful to many different people. We built very quickly visualization tools of all the yes. answers to the survey. Yes. So anyone can access them, anyone can look at them. And that was very important. So everyone can benefit from the answers. So in a pandemic, what can you, if you said, oh my God, this these were the few, you know, two or three things that we were able to influence based on this technology integration or information that we were able to provide policymakers that made the biggest difference? Well, I think there are a different level. I think we had the impact at different levels. So um, the mobility analysis was extremely helpful for the government to really understand to which degree the lockdown and the measures had worked. And, 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 and they, they really appreciated that piece of work a lot. Um, the computational epidemiological models, which we haven't talked about yet, but it's basically we've been building models to predict the number of cases and the number of uh, hospitalizations and the number of intensive care units and the number of deaths you know, um, throughout the entire pandemic. And we've built different types of models because one of the take home messages here is, of course, the underlying reality is extremely complex and is a, is a non purely deterministic system, evidently. I right. mean, the world is really, really hard to model. So, um, if we build models that are completely different in their approach and they give us similar predictions, we can be more certain about those predictions yes. than if the models, each of them says something different. So we have three different models running all the time with completely different methods, like to really um, um, see to which degree, you know, they are aligned. Um, so our predictions have been used. Uh, I mean, I've been, I've been writing reports for many, many months every day with the predictions of the day. So, so they could have a sense of how things were going, how fast, you know, the cases were going to be growing and things like that. So that was particularly helpful, I would say, in the third wave, which took place after Christmas. And it was the worst wave here in the Valencian region. And it was very helpful because at the time, we had just finished our um, third model, which was using deep neural networks. And is a model that we use in the XPRIZE competition. 
Um, and that model predicted extremely accurately the day of the peak of the number of cases and the number of cases at the peak. And it was very helpful because it was a very stressful moment where the cases were growing exponentially. Um, right. There was a huge amount of tension as to whether to implement more measures or persist with these measures or change the measures or what to do because the, the, the number of cases were growing, the deaths were growing. And they placed a fair amount of faith in our model, maybe more than <laughs> I would have placed. <laughs> <laughs> really, because I was just like, oh my God, I hope this model works. Um, and it worked really, really well. But, you know, there is this moment where you're thinking, oh, I don't know, maybe, I mean, this is just a, a model, you know, the world is more complicated. Exactly. Um, so that was that was very helpful. At the same time, we also built um, machine learning based, deep neural network based prediction models of hospital occupancy and intensive care occupancy. That was extremely helpful to allocate resources and to figure out which hospitals were going to be saturated and to, to anticipate that and to determine you know, whether they needed to mobilize more intensive care units and things like that. And then, as I mentioned, the survey has been helpful, I would say, all throughout the pandemic to really understand the needs of the people, to understand the, the sort of like the impact of the pandemic on people's lives and um, and to um, determine what could be the areas of priority for new policies. So I think the different work streams have yeah. had different uh, impacts, but I think there is a broader impact, which is probably the most important maybe, which is the impact of showing a different way of working. Yes. A way of working that is a lot more data-driven, that is more technological, that is very, very different to the traditional approach. And seeing Correct. that, with a, with a clear example for a very long time and seeing the value that this way of working uh, has brought, I think has been the best way for them to realize what they might be missing if they don't undergo you know, the necessary digital transformation. So can, now- Can you come over here and talk to our guys? I think you need to come here and talk to our guys. <laughs> well, um, I mean- uh, I, I think you need also internal advocates. I think there. Has I think to there's a lot of those. I think there are uh, there are a number of people internally, right? That that want to. You just need to. I think people, who who sit in powerful positions, need to understand the implications and the impact of this. Um, and and, and they have to accept. They have to accept that the data might not tell something that they want to hear. I mean, there Correct. is also the risk of, of losing control in a sense, right? Because yes. um, the data could say that your public policy didn't work, you know, something that maybe you really believed in and you really pushed for. And then it's like, okay, sorry, but this is not working, right? And you have to be yeah, able but to that's, accept you know, that. That's part, of the, that's part of the whole, you know, scientific method. You have a hypothesis, you go test it, and if it didn't work, exactly. you come up with a new hypothesis, right? I mean, that's that's the way it should be. and. You know, in reality, no, but, I have but, this but, debate but, but, with people. Policy, you know, but the political world is not exactly like that. Somehow, hey, yes. I think. <laughs> but, but I think this sort of decision making is not just from a policy perspective, but it goes like it 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 permeates right all the way through. I mean, I have this debate with a lot of people in the medical world of it doesn't work. It's making the wrong mistake. It's biased. I'm like. It's always evolving. This is software. It's like every day it's getting better. It doesn't sleep. It can get better the next day. So a year from now, it can be an order of magnitude different than it was 
you know, when it started. Let's pause the conversation for a minute to talk about one small but important thing you can do to help keep the podcast going. And that's to make it easier for other listeners to discover the show by leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is open the Apple Podcast app on your smartphone, search for The Harry Glorickian Show, and scroll down to the Ratings and Reviews section. Tap the stars to rate the show, and then tap the link that says Write a Review to leave your comments. It'll only take a minute, but you'll be doing me a huge favor. And also one more thing. If you enjoy hearing from the kinds of innovators and entrepreneurs I talk to on the show, I know you'll like my new book, The Future You, How Artificial Intelligence Can Help You Get Healthier, Stress Less, and Live Longer. It's a friendly and accessible tour of all the ways today's information technologies are helping us diagnose disease faster, treat them more precisely, and create more personalized diets and exercise programs to prevent them in the first place. The book is out in print and ebook format from Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Just go to either site and search for The Future You by Harry Glorickian. Thanks, and now back to the show. You mentioned the X Prize, and you guys won the X Prize, and you split that prize with you know people in Slovenia. So, is that did you have some programmers there, or did? No, no, no. There was a first prize and a second prize, and we won the first prize, and they won the second prize. So oh, okay, they, okay, okay. They, they were first, first. So I guess first winner, and then second. The, the people that stayed second, yeah. So they. So it how was did like that, that impact? How did that impact you winning that? Did that impact the way that people thought about? The, well, the yeah, I mean, or, I, think or... it gave, I think it gave us a lot of legitimacy and, you know, a, a huge uh, external validation because, you know, we had been, I, I thought we had been doing very, you know, rigorous, um, solid work for many, many months. But of course, it was constrained to the Valencian region, maximum to Spain, and then the X-Prize challenge ask us to build predictive models of the pandemic in 236 countries and regions in the world. So it was a, a step up, you know, from what we had been doing. Um, so I think, I think it, it definitely um, gave a lot of like external validation to the work. Um, I think I find it a very inspirational story. I never thought we were going to win. I was a little bit the devil's advocate in the team when I shared with the team this idea, this opportunity of the of participating in the X Prize competition. But it was more like a teaser. I didn't think that they were going to actually decide to go for it. And <laughs> and, and I and I told them many times, look, guys, uh, guys and girls. I mean, this is you know this is a, a different level. I mean, this is a global competition. Um, you know, if we go for it, we are going to have to work even harder than we have been working all over Christmas, you know, and, and New Year's and everything, because it, the, the competition started um, at, the, at the end of November. I think it was at the very beginning of December. And, and you know, and, and, and I think we should try our best. I mean, if we go for it, we go 100 percent. You know, we just don't sort of go. Yes, yes, yes. Sure. Let's do it. Let's do it. So we kind of jumped into the pool of like the X Prize and. Uh, and it was incredible when we won. I couldn't believe it. It was, to me, it really shows that there is talent anywhere, you know, and everywhere. And 
many times what fails is not even the talent is actually the environment where this talent is correct if it's not correct. an environment that supports the talent and that encourages mm -hmm. the talent you know yes and that empowers the talent the talent is like a little seed right and if you don't have an environment that enables this seed to grow it just stays underground there you know not growing and and i think the ex the entire initiative and and and, and particularly the express competition was this sort of environment where you know, anyone could win. Everyone was in equal, you know, conditions. And and in our team, our team is extremely um, uh, sort of like a very flat structure. The, the there are students and there are full professors, and everyone contributes, you know, equally. And anyone can do anything. You know, it's very sort of like hands-on. You know, very sort of like a startup kind of like like. Yes. And and I think that was a big change from the traditional, well-established, somewhat bureaucratic research processes that pervade in many institutions, right? Where, you know, I don't know, there's a hierarchy from the full professor to the student. And, you know, many times the students feel that they cannot even do some idea that they might have because Correct. they have to be asking for permission, you know? Um, so I think for me, it was also this inspirational story on saying, well, you know, anyone could win any of these competitions you know if they if yeah the, the right environment, environment environment and you know geography i always joke i always say like oh, if you're in the west coast oh you can fail multiple times if you come to the east coast you got to fail a lot less and it depends on which college or university you graduated from you go to europe you fail a lot less because your family and everybody around you will not be happy right it's Depending on where you are, right, you're willing to take more or less risk. And then, of course, that can be superimposed on the organization that's also creating that environment. Um, but let me jump now and say, you know, and, and ask, you guys in Valencia have like a 90% vaccination rate, um, which I think is one of the highest in the world, much higher than the U.S. by by far. I'm, I'm, I'm comparing a region to a country, but... Um, what what do you think accounts for this the differing levels of a compliance what do you think that people in spain are just more trusting of the medical establishment i mean you guys have facebook too so the same misinformation is getting to you that's getting to us um are they more trusting of technology i, I you know i think there are multiple factors i think one very important factor is that fortunately the pandemic wasn't really overly politicized and anyone from any political inclination or party or view, you know, was adopting measures, was wearing masks, you know, was willing to get vaccinated. So there was, there hasn't been this coupling that has happened in many countries between the pandemic and, you know, your political views. You know, I think this has been completely orthogonal issues in Spain, you know, the pandemic impacts everyone. The pandemic doesn't care if you are right wing, left wing or center. I mean, yes. The virus is going to infect you the same. It doesn't matter what yes. you believe, you're going to get it. <laughs> the same is that it's asking you out. Oh, can you don't believe in me? Then I'm going to infect you. So, so I think that has that has definitely helped a lot. Um, the other issue is um, Spain didn't have a, a strong anti-vax movement to, to start from. Um, there is definitely a lot of trust in the medical system. Spain has universal health care for free. So you get the best medical care in the world pretty much for free. You know, 
cancer treatment, the best cancer treatment, everything is for free in Spain. And uh, there is a big um, a trust in the system. There is a big trust in the doctors. And, and, and people really love the Spanish medical system because they see that it saves a lot of lives, you know, and they see that it helps them and it's free. So there isn't really clear um, economic incentives associated to healthcare because it's a right that people have. Um, so right. I think that was another element, the, the element of trust, the element of really um, trusting the system, uh, of the system being free and, and people realizing that, you know, healthcare is fundamental for, you know, a healthy society and, and everyone's sort of like complying. So we have the lack of politicization, the fact that, it, that we didn't have a strong anti-vax movement initially, the fact that the healthcare system, you know, is very trust, is, is trusted a lot and is for free and people really, you know, appreciate it. And then we also have the fact that Spain is um, a very, has a very strong group sort of like group culture where conformism to the group is very important in Spain, as opposed to other cultures where they might emphasize more the individual, you know, and individualism. Spain is more of like a sort of like collective culture in that sense. So as soon as there was a minimum uh, critical mass of people vaccinated, it just became uh, um, uh, an act of, uh, of pride to be vaccinated and belonging to the group, you know, and sort of like complying with the group. And, um, and, and I, th I think that was also um, a factor. Um, so combining all of these, yeah, we are one of the countries with the highest vaccination rates in the world. And uh, we don't really have um, anti-vax movements like other countries have had or have still. Um, and I think people, you know, you have to also remember that Spain was one of the worst uh, impacted countries in the first wave. So right. the virus is very real to everyone. I would say everyone knows someone that has had COVID or has died from COVID. So um, I think as opposed to in other countries or regions in the world where the virus might seem something almost like theoretical because it hasn't been next to you, you don't know people infected, you might think, oh, I don't know, I don't know anyone, so maybe this could not be real, right? Spain has been very, very real because the first wave was horrible here. And, yeah. um, you know, Spain and Italy were like the most impacted countries yes. for a long time, yeah. right? So I think that also has made the, the pandemic extremely real in Spain since the very, very beginning. And seeing the suffering, seeing people dying, seeing your relatives being in intensive care, you know, has really made people think oh it's not it's a no-brainer for me to get vaccinated i don't want to go through this you know i don't want anyone from my family to go through this i don't want to infect other people so i think there's also this element of um of having really um, um endure a very very hard first wave of, of of really that really shocked the society and and people collectively feeling okay we need to defeat you know this virus together we need to do anything we can to minimize the impact that is having in our society so i think there are different reasons you know like anything uh, there isn't a simple answer right but there is a no, confluence uh, of facts i wish <laughs> yeah yeah that i think have played in our favor in terms of um of the pandemic i mean the levels of vaccination are extremely high but also um the life is, is going back to pretty much normal now i mean we there is a lot of activity i mean traveling a lot of traveling we had a lot of tourists this year this summer 
um, uh, Spain kept the schools open the entire school year last year. Okay. Uh, I think that was extremely uh, smart to do. Um, so that was also very positive in terms of not disrupting, you know, the lives of the children and the teenagers, which are some yes. of the most affected, you know, demographic groups. Um, so, so yeah, so I'm proud that that actually the response has been like this in Spain. <laughs> so going back to the technological part, do you, do you think that phones will be more useful tools for epidemiology, personal health in the next pandemic? And, and what have we learned that will help us be smarter about how we use? Yeah, so I think, um, so I think, so there's a difference between, okay, phones and the mobile network. Okay, so what we analyzed was data from the mobile network, not from the phones themselves. And this mm -hmm. is important to clarify because the mobile network is the data capture of the antennas. Correct. That, 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 that are all over the geographic space that are the ones providing the cellular, you know, connection. Yep. Um, so I think that that has proven in many, many cases for many, many years, very valuable, um, both in developing economies and in developed economies. Then the phone itself, uh, um, uh, I think the impact in this pandemic has been, um, I would say, varied. Um, so the digital contact tracing, I don't think it has been successful. At least the data that we have from the survey is that in Spain, it didn't really work at all. Um, mm -hmm. We didn't advocate for it um, uh, because based on our research, and um, we didn't think that that was um, the most um, important thing to do at the time. Uh, we knew since the beginning of the pandemic that roughly 50% of the people uh, 59 years old or younger um, could not self-isolate if they had mm -hmm. to. So uh, in the what is called TTI control strategy, which is uh, trace to know whom to test, to know whom to isolate, if people cannot isolate, there's no point in, in tracing them and testing them because they're going to be infecting everyone else if they can't isolate, right? So I right. You know, in, in investing in um, in infrastructure to help people self-isolate and providing support to people so they can self-isolate, you know, and it's not a huge burden to them, which is also very important uh, uh, to enable, um, you know, um, everyone uh, to do a proper quarantine. Uh, I think there has been quite, uh, it's been quite successful, actually, the part of using the phones for entering symptoms. Many, many people answered our survey on their phones. I would say everyone, pretty much everyone answered our survey on the phones. Um, uh, having some sort of like some digital, you know, um, uh, certificates for vaccinations and things like that. I think that's, uh, that's uh, probably more helpful. Uh, there are projects on using the sensors on the phone to um, diagnose COVID-19 from yes. the breathing parents or the coughing parents. So I think the phone can also be used as a tool for um, sort of like a screening tool, maybe more than a diagnostic tool. And, and of course, it can be used for telemedicine um, as yes. well, uh, particularly in situations where, you know, you are, you can't leave your house, you know, or you can't really um, go. So, so uh, for quite a few months, actually, the provision of care for non-emergencies, non-serious um, issues uh, has been over the phone, actually. And in many cases, it's the mobile phone. So, Which so I brings think, me, hmm. I have another question for you, though, because based on that is, 
separate from the pandemic, because hopefully it's waning and we can get on with our lives. Uh, do you have any ideas you want to pursue in the area of personal health and healthcare delivery? Um, yeah, well, there's one idea that I've been trying to do for seven years. <laughs> that I haven't been able to get around it yet, um, uh, which is a project that I call MobiWell. And it's a project that is, is really, uh, the hope is to really shed quantitative light on the interplay between the dependency that we develop towards our phones and our well-being. Um, so uh, I'm very interested in really understanding what are the implications of the fact that we can't live without our phones um, on our own well-being. I think the phone is a, an incredibly uh, powerful tool to support our well-being and to help us in many ways, you know, for chronic disease management, for, um, you know, as I mentioned, the projects that I mentioned in terms of um, uh, helping us change behaviors that we want to change, you know, to exercise more or to sleep more or to drink, you know, more water or whatever we want to do. The phone is a great ally. Um, it can be a great ally for um, a, as a screening tool for different diseases, um, uh, as an early detection tool also for mm -hmm. certain diseases. But um, we cannot obviate that um, that we, we are addicted to our phones and that we have a dependency, you know, towards our phones. So I am also interested in understanding what are the health uh, implications and the wellness implications of such an addiction, you know, and such a dependency, particularly, you know, in the younger, you know, demographic groups. Um, so that's one project that I'm really interested in. Um, I'm also, uh, uh, we are also working a lot in, in the, Ellis Alicante Foundation that I just created on the ethical implications of AI. Yes. Implications such as the computational violation of privacy or um, the lack of uh, veracity or the opacity or the manipula subliminal manipulation of behavior yes. or the discrimination, algorithmic discrimination. So a lot of these challenges, um, you know, um, we can test them. Um, uh, on the phone, and, and we can also explore and develop innovative algorithms that would have, you know, guarantees for non-discrimination or, you know, that would be privacy preserving, and we can do studies, you know, on the phone to see if that is the case. So I think it's also a great tool for uh, human behavioral studies and for what is called yes. computational social sciences, because it's this- I mean, if we could just get Facebook to open its data to you, Oh yeah, I would love that. <laughs> yeah, I'm but sure you know that what? we could see a lot. Yes, definitely, absolutely. I mean, you see what's happened with the latest, you know, uh, um, revelations about some of the Facebook research. So, so yeah, but I do think more research is needed to really um, understand this very complex interplay between, you know, ourselves, our well-being, both mental well-being and and physical well-being. And, and the technology that we use, and it's an area that I'm very oh. interested in. My new book is all about that direction, which is how can you utilize technology to live a healthier you know, life? Or, or as one of the gentlemen that I interviewed once said, a better health span, not just a lifespan. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I've devoted my life to inventing and exploring and developing, you know, technology to 
um, somehow improve the quality of life of people in some way. But I think it's also time to really understand in a rigorous way, you know, what is the impact that that technology is having, um, you know, on our lives. Not technology that is explicitly designed to support our well-being, but the 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 technology that we use on a daily, you know, on a daily basis, you know, the the services and the applications that we use every day for uh, any uh, purpose, you know, not specifically for healthcare purposes. Yeah, yeah I think you were chosen. Uh, you were on the TR100 list, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Uh, and so you always wonder, like, how well did the TR100 predict correctly? And it seems that they, they've, at least in your case, they got it. They got it right on the impact that you would have on the world. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was really. I have a very nice memory. You know, I got my PhD from MIT, so getting this. Uh, recognition for the MIT, you know, technology report was really, really nice. And I think it was the, I was the first Spanish person to get it. So that was also really nice in terms of Spain, because I think, um, you know, it might have helped, uh, you know, other scientists from Spain to, I don't know, be considered or um, for this award. So, yeah, so I have, yeah. have very nice memories, very fond memories of... <laughs> The event there, yeah. So, well, I can't thank you enough for staying up later, or, or I, you know, it's actually late afternoon your time, and, and participating today, and and sort of giving people, you know, who are listening an insight of how technology can make such a profound impact on managing pandemic and keeping people safe and communicating the right information to them. Um, it's it's. It's huge. Um, and so I hope that people hearing this can take the lessons from our discussion. Um, and you never know, people may end up reaching out to you because of it. So I, I hope that all this, you know, moves in a, a, a positive direction. So thank you so much for being on the show today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the interest. And yeah, it's been a really lovely conversation. So. Uh, I thank you also, LinkedIn, for establishing the connection between <laughs> us. <laughs> thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Ciao. Ciao. That's it for this week's episode. You can find past episodes of The Harry Glorikian Show and The Moneyball Medicine Show at my website, glorikian.com, under the tab Podcasts. Don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts to leave a rating and review for the show. You can also find me on Twitter at hglorikian, and we always love it when listeners post about the show there or on other social media. Thanks for listening, stay healthy, and be sure to tune in two weeks from now for our next interview.